Fundraising everywhere. 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 Hello, hello. Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. Over the next few episodes, we're taking a look at some of our favourite grants and major donor on-demand sessions in celebration of our Grants and Major Donors Conference on the 14th of December. If you'd like to join us at the conference, you can use the promo code FEPODCAST to get 50% off. Yep, just pop in FEPODCAST at checkout to get 50% off Grants and Major Donor Conference in December via our website. Now, without further ado, on to today's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Really, really excited to be here today uh, talking about how to create queer inclusive workplaces and marketing campaigns. So first of all, an introduction. Hi, I'm Paf. I'm a digital marketer turned director, creator, public speaker, and DEI consultant. And I'm also the co-founder of Take Up Space, which is a community and media company for diverse creators. And just for a few other fun facts about me, I'm Papua New Guinean Australian. So before you ask, yes, I desperately miss the sun. I'm now based in Scotland. (laughs) Um, I'm an astrology nerd. So please, if you are into astrology, guess my big three in the chat. It's like my favorite thing to see how people perceive me. I'm super gay, which is, you know, pretty much a qualification for talking you through this conversation today. And I'm neurodivergent. I'm ADHD and autistic. So if you see this little guy, uh, this is my fidget toy. So in today's chat, I'm going to be talking through a few things, Um, starting out with my coming out stories, because there are actually a couple. Then we're going to go into a bit of a discussion around what is intersectionality and giving you some examples of how to use intersectionality in practice. And then we go into more of the actionable advice section. So some really, really great advice on how to create a queer inclusive workplace and LGBTQ marketing campaigns. Um, And hopefully we'll have a bit of time at the end uh, for some Q&A. But please feel free to pop questions in the chat throughout as well while they're top of mind. So starting off with my story, don't worry, I won't bore you with the whole thing because that would take several hours. (laughs) So let's go back to 2008. Um, And the first thing I think of 2008 is this line from Black Eyed Peas. Um, I am this person (laughs) and I have a crush on a girl. But the thing is, I don't actually know that until almost several decades later. Um, And how this all happened was I just noticed this girl that I'd never really seen before at my school. And she was wearing these cherry red Doc Martens. She was kind of a goth. So she had heaps of eyeliner and really cool, quirky accessories. Um, And she had a bunch of piercings as well. And as you can see from this hilarious, not even cringy, I'm going to embrace it, um, photo, I also had some piercings and was kind of in my metalhead era. 
Um, so I noticed this girl and the first thing I was like thinking to myself was, wow, this girl's really cool. Okay. Um, I've never really seen a person like this. This is really interesting. Um, and then naturally I just started to notice her and notice who her friends were and what she kind of did after school and realized that we both often would go to the same shops. Um, I lived in a very country town in Australia. So we would take the bus into the city, um, and go to some of the same shops. And I didn't realize that she would do the same thing. Um, so one day I actually had my wrist pierced and I still have the scars <laughs> to prove it. Um, and I thought this was like a really cool opportunity to talk to this girl because obviously she was really into piercings, right? So I talked to her on the bus and we're talking about piercing. She's talking about the one she wants next, yada, yada. And then I spend the next two weeks kind of obsessively thinking about this interaction. Um, and then I'm like thinking about, oh, I wonder what it would be like if I introduced her as my girlfriend to my friends. And that's the end of the story. And the reason that's the end is at no part in this obviously very queer interaction experience did I think this is a little bit gay. <laughs> um, and that's honestly because I had zero queer representation um, for people who looked like me. Okay. The queer representation when I was growing up in the 2000s uh, looked a little bit like this. So it's very white, uh, it's very cis, and it's usually men. You can think of like the queer, the gay best friend trope um, that you saw a lot, Mean Girls, Glee, Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> um, but in no, nowhere, in, in no part of these characters did I see someone that looked like me. Um, so I actually completely forgot about that girl and that whole two weeks of my life um, where looking back, it was obviously one of my first crushes because I just didn't really think anything of it. I had never really seen queer representation or, um, women loving women, uh, you know, in, in my experiences personally or on TV and on media, which was kind of my only access to the outside world. Remember, this is like a pre-social media era. So yeah, I go on and that's the, that's the first and last time I ever think about that girl until 2020. Um, so 2020, I don't need to give you a, a refresher on what happened that year. Um, but one, one part of that for me with a lot of isolation, um, a lot of time to think and a lot of boredom, um, like many of us, I joined TikTok and I kind of joined the app just thinking it was going to be like a fun way to waste time, see all the weird sounds and memes and quotes my friends were talking about at school that I, at school, at work that I had no idea what they were talking about. And something very interesting happened. Uh, so if you have ever used TikTok, you know that the algorithm is second to none. It will like somehow learn everything about you um, in about 0.2 seconds and serve you a fully curated, tailored for you page with all the content of your deepest, darkest thoughts and interests. Um, and it took TikTok maybe a couple of hours to learn that I was queer. And at the time I actually had already come out as bisexual years before. So I had had a bit of a light bulb moment and realized um, that I was queer. But at that point I was mostly dating men. And honestly, I'd felt really isolated from the queer community because around this time, uh, you know, bisexuality was often seen as a phase um, and really people would judge you based on who you were currently dating. So if I was dating a man, they would just kind of perceive me as straight. And honestly, it had been so many years since I was 
involved or even felt like a part of the queer community that I kind of started to believe them that it was a phase. But TikTok was the thing that reminded me and kind of ended up in what I call my queer reawakening. And what happened was I started to, one, remember, hey, I actually am queer and this is a valid part of who I am and my identity. I remembered that <laughs> that first crush on that girl that I'd completely forgotten about. And I, I saw that interaction and experience through a new lens. And then I started to feel inspired to tell my story. And it was usually through a humorous or a funny or a relatable lens short, short videos talking about, you know, different parts of the queer experience. So the first one there talking about how every queer girl in quarantine is probably thinking about shaving their head, um, or cutting bangs or something. Um, but then something interesting happened. I, I, reconnected uh, with my queerness, but I actually realized that there was so much more to it than I had originally thought. And through, again, that period of time of self-reflection, I feel like 2020 was really a point in time where we all kind of had the space to look at our lives and ask ourselves, is this actually what we want? Is this aligned with our values? Is this Are we living as our authentic selves? Um, and the answer to that was no. So at the age of 27, I came out as gay and I realized that that was my true authentic self. And I had also realized that a lot of the things that I had been doing uh, was really like following the, the path that was laid out for me, that expected path of heteronormativity. Um, and throughout this process of finding myself and documenting it, it's really funny. It's very strange, actually. You can go on my TikTok right now, scroll back, and you can literally see me come out in real time. It's archived on the internet, which is very funny. Uh, but throughout this process, people really started to resonate. You know, a lot of people were having these similar you know, um, light bulb moments and were coming out as queer or gay, uh, we're realizing that, you know, they potentially want to use they, them pronouns or a trans. It was just a real moment in the queer community of, I think, people having that space without, you know, being perceived. Who am I without, uh, when I'm not leaving the house and, and having to put on all these masks. And throughout that process, I grew an audience of around 90,000 people. Um, and one of these, one of the, these followers uh, ended up being a Scottish girl from Edinburgh, and one of my pieces of content came up on her For You page. Um, and obviously she thought I was pretty cool. And uh, we ended up chatting. We ended up dating long distance. Um, and I ended up moving from Australia to Edinburgh without having ever been met her in person. We met for the first time at the Edinburgh airport. Um, and that Scottish girl is now my wife. <laughs> so it's safe to say that 2020 was a real huge turning point in my life for so many reasons. Um, but a lot of it came from finding my community for the first time and feeling inspired to tell my story um, and be validated through that. And that was through TikTok. So shout out to TikTok. <laughs> no, I, I really, really like this quote because it kind of speaks to what I was talking about in terms of following that, that path that is laid out. And this is from Miles Johnson from an essay called Neuroqueer. And it says, identities not considered the default, that is non-white, neurodivergent, queer, among others, are pushed towards assimilation to the default. 
But wait, there's more. (laughs) Um, I already spoiled this in my intro, but in 2020, I also realized that I may not be broken or weird or an alien. I actually may have something different about me. um, And that is ADHD. And again, this came from TikTok. And I know there's a lot of debate right now uh, with people saying people are diagnosing themselves by just seeing one TikTok and thinking, oh my gosh, that's me. Um, For me, it happened a little bit differently. I actually did uh, a post about this weird thing I had with time. And I basically, without knowing, explained exactly what executive dysfunction is without knowing what that was. And I had it go semi-viral and many, many people like this lovely person here said, I think that's just ADHD. And I had never heard about ADHD. I mean, I had, but from my perspective, this was just something that, you know, little little boys had, um, you know, the hyperactive ones that can't sit still at school. And I loved school. I was obsessed with school uh, and very specific interest, but I was a little bit naughty as well. But for the most part, I was obsessed with school. So obviously I couldn't have ADHD. But this was the catalyst to start my in-depth research um, into finding out all about neurodivergence. And something really interesting happened again. I was realizing there was so many, uh, there was so much language around all the experiences that I had been having internally that I had never had language around. So that weird thing with time was executive dysfunction, um, you know, being able to be incredibly um, driven and ambitious at work, but then coming home and feeling so drained that I have to sit in a dark room for hours and eating the same food every day, every day for three years. All examples of how my neurodivergence showed up without me knowing. So once again, I had this light bulb moment, something shifted where I was able to see my life at that point, almost three decades of it through an entirely different lens. And I mentioned the neurodivergence because I know this conversation is around queerness in the workplace. Uh, but as I'm going to tell you, uh, in intersectionality, you can't actually pull all those different parts of yourself apart. Um, and in fact, my neurodivergence and masking, which is what I had been doing, actually caused me to not realize I was queer until I was 27. So here are a couple really good quotes around what masking is. Masking is the suppression of one's true self. It is known by many names, camouflaging, compensating, adaptive morphing. And this one, masking is often used to describe the artificial performance of social behaviors that are seen as more socially acceptable in a neurotypical society. And what is very socially acceptable? Man, woman, dating. (laughs) So this was just one example of how I was masking um, a lot of my sexuality without realizing. So onto the next part that those are my coming out stories. Um, Now I'm going to take you down a little bit more theory behind intersectionality. And this is probably a term that you've heard, um, but I'm really keen to Uh, attribute the term correctly and also show you how it can be used in practice um, and potentially debunk a few myths about intersectionality as well. So starting off, what is intersectionality? So it was originally coined by American civil rights activist, uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, here to my right, uh, in 1989. And she defines intersectionality as 
a metaphor for understanding the ways that multiple forms of inequality or disadvantage sometimes compound themselves and create obstacles that often are not understood among conventional ways of thinking. Some of the things that Ms. Crenshaw, Professor Crenshaw was talking about uh, can also be seen as identity labels. Um, so thinking of intersectionality, we can consider how someone's class, race, gender, sexuality, neurodiversity, disability, and of course more can start to inform how that person experiences the world and also how that person is experienced by the world. So I want to give you my example to hopefully make this a bit clearer. So I, I grew up in, in poverty. Um, I came from a very small village in, in Papua New Guinea um, and was, you know, that, that, that background has definitely impacted um, my relationship to money uh, and a lot of other things um, growing up as well. Um, my race, so I'm a person of color. Again, I'm Papua New Guinean, Australian, identify as black. Um, I'm gender non-conforming. So you might've seen on my, my pronouns there, I, I use they, them, and she, her pronouns. Um, obviously, as you know by now, I'm gay, I'm a lesbian, um, and I'm autistic and ADHD. And I do consider those to um, be dis disabling. So I want to stop here because I think this is often where I think a lot of people's thinking around intersectionality stops. Uh, it's, it's a way that understands how all of our, our identities combine to create a unique lens in which we view the world, which the world view us. Um, but sometimes I think people stop at these identity labels. Um, and while I enjoy identity labels, because I think that having language and speaking things um, plainly is really helpful myself. As I said, it took me 27 years to know I was queer and autistic ADHD. But I do think they can be limiting because we could potentially look at these labels here and think that it is a box ticking exercise. You know, if you met someone who on paper had these same identity labels, you might think, oh, they're exactly the same as PATH. But what I think these labels lack is uh, a depth and nuance in the humanity behind us and, and our personhood, our experiences, our stories. What I would also say is sometimes I think we can think of intersectionality as like an oppression Olympics. Um, if you have, you know, all these different, um, these different identities that can be seen as marginalized, then I must be at the top of the oppression Olympics, um, which obviously isn't the case. Uh, I think again, it's, it's about understanding what happens because of these labels? So what what could be some of the experiences I had or how I uh, continue to experience the world now um, because I grew up in poverty? You know, that informs a lot of who I am as a person. Um, and it can also inform a lot of how I um, approach work. You know, if you're always coming from nothing and you potentially have a scarcity mindset, um, you might be the type of person to always say yes to everything and burn yourself out because you're, you're so used to having nothing. That's just one example. So my, my advice is definitely, you know, sit and map your own um, identities and consider your own intersectionality. How are you privileged? How are you not privileged? I think what this doesn't explain is um, a lot of the privilege that I have as well. Um, I grew up in Australia. I have siblings that grew up in Papua New Guinea. 
So I'm extremely privileged in terms of the opportunities that I had, even though I was very poor, uh, I was in, you know, a first world country. So I encourage you all to sit here and think about some of those, um, those, you know, intersection, intersectional identities that you have and how they maybe inform how you are now, um, in the workplace and in the rest of your life. So let's move on to thinking through intersectionality in practice. Uh, so this is, you know, now you know that, now what do you do with it? My first and probably biggest piece of advice is to continue to learn from people with lived experiences outside of your own identities. As you can see, I tick I tick a few boxes, uh, but that doesn't mean that I know everything. It also doesn't mean that I am um, a spokesperson for every person with those same identities. Every autistic person is not the same. We're not a monolith. Same with queer people, of course. So I need to, and we all need to continue to be in community, learn from, and hear stories from people um, within our identities and also out with of those as well. Practice asking the question, who's not here? So this can be done very literally in a team meeting, uh, in a leadership meeting, at a C-suite, anything, and, and at a panel that you're organizing, who's not here? And again, that, 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 uh, offers you a chance to step outside of your own identities and maybe turn off some of those blinkers uh, that you may have had and realizing, oh, okay, we actually don't have um, a few people represented here and we might be missing a few gaps. Speak from your own perspective, um, but try not to assume or generalize. As I said, I'm not a spokesperson for every single queer autistic ADHD on the planet. Uh, we all have very different lived experiences, uh, but we're all valid. And it's really important to take ownership and speak from your own perspective and know that your lived experience is valid, but try not to assume or generalize that every person is the same. Um, so I recently uh, did a project with monday.com. So if you don't know, that is an organizational platform. Um, and I spoke about one of my biggest tips in organizing is thinking with the end deadline or the end goal and then working backwards. It helps me to prioritize and make sure I hit deadlines. And I post this on LinkedIn and, and another um, neurodivergent person said, oh my gosh, that would overwhelm me. I have to start with the start and all the details and then map things out in, in that order. Um, and I just think this is a really good reminder for when we're thinking about advocating for any marginalized community is it's not a monolith. Um, but all you can really do is keep learning and keep implementing different things. Um, because that's how we get to a, a place where it is going to be more inclusive for, for people. So I've already mentioned this here. Uh, not every, no one is a monolith. Um, there's no single way to be queer. Um, and this is this last point I think is really important with any diversity, equity, inclusion work is there's never a finish line. You know, there's never a point where you're like, oh, guys, we nailed it. <laughs> we, we can hang our hats now. We've, we've, we've done DEI. Um, it is an ever evolving practice and it has to be because language evolves, uh, identities evolve, people evolves, culture evolves, culture shifts, um, the, the environment that we're all in continues to change constantly. Um, so it is, it really is, you know, something that we can continue to strive to do. Um, and, and me as, personally, as a consultant, something that I will continue to strive to do, because again, you don't know what you don't know. So now I just want to show 
an example of, you know, what happens without intersectionality. And this is some things that I've observed um, throughout the years. So without intersectionality, you might see a pride campaign with only cis white gay creators. Um, without intersectionality, you might see an international women's day panel, but all the panel are white straight women. You might see a neurodivergent community without any people of color. And you might see uh, black spaces actually alienating queer black people uh, because they're not being inclusive. And from a workplace perspective, you may see workplace policies that lack nuance and specificity. And I want to finish this part here on intersectionality with another brilliant quote. You can see I'm very influenced and continue to be inspired by um, black feminist uh, work such as Audre Lorde. This is from 1982. There is no thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. And I think that that's really the key part I want to get through with intersectionality. Um, as I've said, I have, I hold all of those identities and it's actually quite rare that I feel fully able to be myself. Um, because oftentimes if I go into queer spaces, you know, I live in Scotland, there's a few people of color here. <laughs> um, but a lot of the time the queer, the queer focused, um, the, the queer groups that I, uh, I, I frequent are, you know, quite, quite white. Um, so I, I feel myself, you know, I feel like my queer self there, but I don't feel fully able to bring um, my blackness in into that conversation all the time. That's because we can't split up ourselves into different parts. Those identities are helpful to understand and to create language and, um, and to create initiatives around, um, but we are the full sum of our parts. So I now want to move on to some more actionable advice on creating a queer inclusive workplace. I think I'm talking quite quickly because <laughs> we're going through it, but that more time for questions at the end if we do finish a little bit early. So where to start? I think this is really um, pertinent advice with any DEI journey that you're going on as an organization when creating inclusion in the workplace for any marginalized group, the process must always begin with humility and a willingness to learn. Part of this journey is moving from a space of awareness to acceptance. While awareness is passive, acceptance is welcoming a person. It's engaging, including, and offering them a seat at the table. And acceptance can be seen as understanding in action. And it's the most important thing we can do to be more inclusive. So while that was actually uh, taken from the new project, which is a project I helped co-create with Google to create more neuroinclusive workplaces, I think it's absolutely uh, relevant for, again, any, any inclusion work that you're doing, career inclusion included. Oh, one of my emojis didn't load. <laughs> So I want to take you through some steps, um, through some pillars of LGBTQ inclusion. So I've broken this down into language, training, policies, and initiatives. And feel free to screenshot um, or take some notes um, as they'll, they'll be pretty chunky slides, but hopefully packed full of value that you can implement. 
So let's start with language. I think a lot of us probably think of uh, inclusive language a lot. It's something that's been spoken about quite a lot in the last few years. Um, And I do think that language is really important uh, when creating queer inclusive spaces. So the first thing that you can really look to do is to use gender neutral language um, in all internal and external comms where possible. So this one always grates me because again, um, I just like things to be efficient But whenever I see he slash she, I'm like, just say they, just say they, it's so much easier. Use less letters and it's more inclusive. Ladies and gentlemen, you can use everyone. Um, There's, there's a bunch, honestly, I'd recommend Googling to get a more comprehensive list of gender neutral language, but it's just very small intentional tweaks. And I think that's, that's another key tip is just intention. You just have to have a little bit of intention. Um, and if you, you know, if you're watching this and you're, you know, you're straight, you're not queer, um, and you haven't really maybe had much experience or, um, friendships with people in the queer community, these are just things that maybe you've never, you've never thought about. Um, and that's okay. But I think it, we're at the point, uh, in time where we, we all need to be more intentional. We all need to learn again, expand our horizons beyond the identities that we hold. Um, and once you start to see these things, once you, once you start to see how how subtle these shifts can be and but the impact they can have, it's just something that you can, you, you know, you kind of get into a habit of, of looking out for and implementing. So gender neutral language, definitely a great place to start. Uh, This is a really helpful one. So I used to run a digital marketing agency. One of the first things I did when I took over was audit our whole recruitment process and policies, um, but our job, our job um, specs as well. And one of the first things I did was put in a little, it's not a disclaimer, it's more of an encouragement at the bottom, um, encouraging people from the LGBTQIA plus and other marginalized communities to apply, even if they feel they aren't hundred percent qualified. Now, that last point is really, really important. Um, There were studies done a few years ago that actually showed um, women and women identifying people would only apply for jobs that they thought they were 100% qualified for. If it says four years and they have three and a half, they would be like, oh, dang it, that's not for me. Um, Whereas men and men identifying people would usually apply for roles that they were 60% qualified for. Um, And what happens is, you know, you you kind of write these job specs and it's like a wish list, right? Gosh, the perfect person would have all these things. But if you've ever hired people, you know that a lot of the time people can surprise you. And there's a lot to be said about transferable skills that aren't necessarily going to be laid out in that job spec. So by having this little encouragement and just, you know, speaking the quiet part out loud, it can help someone who's looking through and and already um, disqualifying themselves uh, to to stop and maybe apply. And they might end up being, you know, your your next superstar that you hire. This next point is very easy to implement and I think a really, really good signal um, for, excuse me, any organization wanting to signal that they are a safe uh, place for queer people to work. And that's including your pronouns. So you can see here to my example, I've included my pronouns after my name, include them in your Zoom calls, your team calls, your Slack name, your email signature. Um, anywhere you have your name is an opportunity to include um, and normalize pronoun usage. So I say no- normalize um, because uh 
a lot of like cis, cis straight folks might think, oh, I just use normal <laughs> pronouns or why do I need to include my pronouns? Um, the whole thinking is it's not actually for you. It's typically to normalize it for other queer people. Um, so I'll tell you from a personal example, I, I used to only use they, them pronouns for a couple years. Um, it's only been recently that I've been a bit more fluid with um, the pronouns that I use mostly because I was being misgendered on a daily basis and that was quite painful. Um, but when I would meet someone and I would see that they had their pronouns in their email signature um, or in person, if I met someone and they said, hi, my name's Jane, my pronouns are she, her, I would immediately have a sigh of relief because what that means is one, it was a safe place for me to say my pronouns, they, them, and not feel like it would be ridiculed or it would open a can of worms or I'd get a bunch of questions I didn't really want. Um, I think that's quite the difficult thing, especially when you use, you know, they, them pronouns, for example, is oftentimes not, no one's going to know unless you tell them, but by telling them you're now talking about gender in a conversation that maybe is to do with campaigns and work and feels a bit strange to be, you know, putting yourself out there like that. So as soon as I meet someone who is actively, yeah, introducing themselves with their pronouns, making it a habit, normalizing it, I just feel safe that I can do the same and it's not going to be a huge, you know, um, internal battle that, that no one's even knowing is going on. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, crap, do I out myself and say my pronouns are they, them, and it might cause, you know, questioning and things I don't really want, or do I just sit here and because I'm feminine presenting, uh, people are going to misgender me the whole time. That's that's kind of the internal battle that happens a lot with non-binary folks. So yeah, if you if you listen to this, easiest thing you can do to to become an ally today <laughs> is um, introducing yourself with your names and pronouns, and then avoiding binary terms. So a lot of the time, a lot of the time we say male um, and female when we actually mean men and women. And I think that the issue uh, with with these binary terms is one they're they're actually related to sex and sex and gender are two different things, um, but they are binary. So there's no wiggle room. Whereas terms like men and women automatically include trans men, trans women, um, and of course non-binary people for non-binary folks. So that that is the first piece there with language. Now let's move on to training. So when onboarding a newcomer, take some time to ask them if it's okay for you to include their pronouns um, when welcoming everyone to the team. So the reason I ask that instead of just defaulting to it is sometimes people uh, don't want to speak about their pronouns. So they may be queer or they may be trans and they may actually find that talking about the pronouns is kind of outing themselves. Um, it's really, again queer people aren't a monolith. It's really dependent on the person. So, but if you've already had conversations, say in the interview process, and ideally when someone is applying, um, you give them a space that they can include their pronouns. If they are giving you their pronouns, it's a pretty good signal that they're okay for you to share those, but it's always good to, um, to do that. And what this does is literally in, you know, a few characters, it introduces them into the organization, to the team. Um, and people immediately know what their pronouns are. So it removes them having to have that moment of, oh my gosh, do I tell them? Do I not tell them? The second part is, you know, as part of that onboarding training, include an overview of your company's DEI policies and processes 
during that. Um, and if you're sitting here thinking, oh, we, we don't have any, that's obviously a good, <laughs> a good flag to go and look to implement them and see how you can um, put those into place. But what this does is it just, get, again, gets everyone on the same page. Um, for a queer person, seeing these, you know, queer affirming um, policies and anti-harassment um, policies and things like that, again, it's just reaffirming that this is a safe place for them to be their authentic selves because they may not have come out yet, um, you know, from a from a gender or a sexuality perspective. I mean, they probably haven't because, again, it's not something that comes out in the first interview. But these are all signals to make that person feel safe, that they can be their authentic self, which is what we all want. Pretty simple, this one, but having a zero tolerance policy against homophobia, transphobia, racism, obviously, all the isms, and enforcing that. What is really important is all of these changes need to come from the top down um, because, as we know, leaders uh, are the ones who kind of set the tone. If you have people in HR or people in the ERG, really making sure that, you know, they're normalizing pronouns and um, using gender uh, neutral language. Um, and then people in the leadership are completely not even giving um, a rats about it. That sets a pretty clear uh, message that it's not actually that important to the organization. Um, and sometimes I've, I've, speaking, I've spoken to queer people who have told me that they actually had, um, you know, on the uh, recruitment, on the job spec, they had really like queer inclusive language. They, they had their pronouns in their email signature. And then they kind of felt duped because once they got into the organization, they realized that that was just a bit of a tick box exercise. And actually from a leadership, from a culture perspective, it was not queer inclusive. So that's again, another, another point to say, it's not just this, there are quick, easy fixes that you can do, but you need to have a culture that is really um, queer inclusive and that is calling calling out the bullshit, quite frankly, um, from the top down because that's where the culture is set. And then in terms of training, continuing to train and upskill the entire team. Um, so especially leadership and C-suite for the reasons I've just discussed, seek out those opportunities. Um, we can all Google diversity calendar 2024 and, and map out, okay, we've got, you know, Pride Month in June, we've got Black History Month in October, ADHD Awareness Month, October. Um, you can, of course, uh, create initiatives and um you know, opportunities around, around their calendars. Um, or you can kind of look to see the different identities and the different, the gaps that you have maybe, uh, within the lived experience in your employees, um, and look to create, bring in consultants, bring in speakers, bring in panelists like me, you can always book me to do it. <laughs> um, and this really just helps broaden the understanding within the organization, because again, it's an ever evolving process policies. Now, I probably should have started with this first because I, I honestly think this is the most important thing. This is the thing that is often overlooked, but this means the most. As we know, having something in paper um, that actually protects the well-being of your employees is paramount, especially with marginalized people. So regularly audit your policies to check for outdated terminology, language, um, and even discriminatory, intentional or otherwise policies because they are there. Again, language, everything is kind of changing um, and evolving. 
excuse me. Um, so it's really easy for some of these things to stick, but as we know, when it comes to the crunch, these policies, um, are legal and it needs to be in paper for it to be, um, um, upholded. So one example there, and again, this was something that I did, um, previously when I ran an agency was, was looking at these policies, um, maternity leave, you can change that to parental leave to include all people of all genders, you know, changing language such as the pregnant woman to the pregnant person. Again, this might seem like semantics or small things, but these small, uh, changes can have very, very big impacts because again, these are legal documents that, that really can make or break, um, uh, an employee's experience. As I said before, workplace harassment policies, this is probably where you should start before adding the nice to haves or the extras or the should haves, I should say, not nice to haves, but base level, making sure that you have a zero tolerance policy against um, any harassment based on sex, gender, sexuality, et cetera. Ensuring that um, that is really robust um, is, is very, very important. To protect your employees. Then you can start to look at implementing holistic queer specific policies. So we've seen things lately such as gender affirming care, gender transition surgery, leave um, in addition to other well-being initiatives. Again, as a queer person and I know many trans people who would say just seeing that in paper, it just shows that you're walking the walk as an employee. You know, you're not just changing your logo during pride, you're actually standing up for um, and advocating for um, the needs the specific needs of the queer and LGBTQ plus in, uh, community. And then this is obviously if you have, you know, a traditional workspace, but things like having gender neutral bathrooms um, beyond just the disabled bathrooms, which obviously you should have as well. Um, just these small changes can, again, make a big difference. It's, you know, for, for the trans person who is not sure which bathroom to use. And again, in the UK, obviously that's a huge thing right now. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, queer and trans-specific hatred um, and really, really awful stories in the news and the media being um, being projected. Uh, so having it, knowing that your employee, your employer, your workplace is a safe space to be your authentic self and and not have to think, you know, which bathroom do I get to use? Um, again, small small changes, huge huge impact. And then initiatives. Um, so I already kind of said this, but before slapping on a rainbow logo during Pride, um, consider everything else you've been doing as an organization to, to do the work. And it's important to be honest. Um, it's important to know that, you know, we all have to start somewhere and you could be starting right from the start and that's okay because you're, you're giving it a go. Um, but it is important to, to consider how you signaling to the outside that you are, you know, queer inclusive, um, is that actually translating to the reality of working in your organization? So in saying that, um, I would say, I would actually say group solidarity matters and I've spoken to other queer people and they have differing opinions. Um, some people think that it's rainbow washing to just to change your logo during pride. Um, but I personally think with the rise of queer hatred in the UK, it can show solidarity to the queer community. I noticed this year during Pride that there was much less organizations change their logo. Um, and it was a small thing, but 
I kind of wish that more changed it, even if it was a little bit performative, because I think it's important um, to show we're not going to back down as an organization about who we advocate for um, in times of strife. So, you know, Pride is a long way away. It's in June next year. But I think this is a really good moment to start thinking about how you can implement some of these actions that was discussed. Um, so then you can, you know, you are proud to show your support during Pride because you know you've done the work. You've kind of earned earned it. In saying that, Pride is a month, um, but we are queer all year. So considering year-round initiatives such as speaker sessions, partnering with LGBTQ plus creators, highlighting queer influencers, brands, etc. year-round, it just shows that you're you're doing the work. It's not just a performative thing. Um, you don't just think about it for one month. You are really, you know, here for the queer community. And I think that's um, that says a lot. Now, on the on the pride subject, um, don't assume your your LGBTQ plus employees want to head up every pride initiative. Um, don't just think, oh yeah, I've got I've got one queer person in my team. I'm going to ask them to to head everything up. Um, they might love to, they might absolutely want to, but instead, put a bit of a you know a notice out if who is wanting to get involved, um, and then ideally prioritize the queer people who put their hands up because they have that lived experience. But include allies, of course which are very important in, in the work. Um, in saying that, if you are having, you know, queer folks stand up um, ERGs or pride initiatives, remember that they are able to, to tap into their lived experience. Um, the reason that they're able to, to pull these things together is because they have that knowledge that you don't have. So it's important to actually pay them extra because it's on top of their existing workload. That's something that I hear a lot is there are opportunities to stand up ERGs and queer people are really, really keen to do this because it's very near and dear to their heart. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're cognizant of that. It will add to their workload and they're not being paid. So try, you know, try not to take advantage of this. Again, if you're really doing the work, you know that um, lived experience um, matters and, you know, people should be paid fairly and equitably for the value that they provide. And then lastly, include the queer community in your queer campaigns, um, but more on that in just a second. So my most underrated tip, this, I think this is really good advice for any allies um, or aspiring allies. Um, one of my good friends, Max Siegel, he is a, a trans creator and consultant, um, often speaks about allyship to becoming an accomplice. So an ally um, might wear the rainbow flag. Um, maybe they'll go to a, a pride protest, which is awesome. Um, but accomplice is someone who's actually uh, in there doing the work. Um, and I think this is a good framework to consider. So know when to step up um, and know when to step back. So let me give you some examples. If you're in the workplace and you see uh, a queer person um, being belittled or harassed or even just little snide comments being made um, to them, or you've you you kind of you're you're listening in and you can hear that um, someone's really getting them to explain pronouns and explain gender and getting into some really, you know, deep conversations um, that could be quite emotionally laborious um, or draining for the queer person. It's your chance as an ally to step up. Um, when we're discussing about things to do with our identity, 
uh, it is personal. So even if for the other person, it's more of a discussion or a debate, or they're curious, um, you have to know that when you're taking that discussion to a person with those lived identities, it is personal to them. So they're always going to potentially have emotion um, tied to that, which is it's just totally um, understandable. Um, but that's when allies can ste- step in and um, and have those tough conversations because for allies, it's not personal to them. You know, they're, they're not queer, but they maybe know the language. They maybe have really good resources to share. Um, so they can kind of stand in that gap um, and advocate for the queer community. And then we can be like, okay, I can just sit back here because I wasn't trying to teach everyone everything today. <laughs> And then knowing when to step back. So this is also really important. Um, One thing we don't want to do as allies is to take over and have everything be about yourself. Um, Saw this recently with a Pride campaign um, and they had um, an ally, an active ally um, being highlighted, which great. The work that they do for the queer community in their advocacy is excellent, um, but it probably wasn't their their point to stand up in the middle of that pride campaign. So know when to step back, think, Hmm, am I talking about something to do with my experiences? Uh, or, you know, is it an opportunity to maybe pass the mic to someone? So again, it's really about knowing, uh, about knowing, um, the right, the right chance to do this. Um, and my, my thing, my note at the bottom, my tip at the bottom is remember the only thing worse than trying and getting it wrong is not trying at all. So to the final point here before we go into, into Q&A is around creating uh, queer inclusive marketing campaigns. So, oh my gosh, these slides look very different on my side. I think they turned out a little bit funky, but hey, we're going to roll with it. Um, So we're going to be discussing how you can do that from ideation, creative, copy through to UX. So let's start with ideation. So a really good rule of thumb, if you're creating a campaign for any community, consult with that community from the start. Um, And what this does is it makes sure that you are really creating authentic representative work that aligns and speaks to the queer community. Um, And you can also gain really great insights from that that you may not know because you're not a part of that community. Um, a way to do this is reaching out to consultants directly um, or tap into communities such as Take Up Space, my own, um, or We Create Space and to provide market research ideas and inspiration, again, directly from the community. Another excellent agency is Purple Goat, um, who specialize in uh, disability advocacy, but they often create roundtables where you can tap into those insights and hear directly from the community that you're creating a campaign around. And again, Another tip, tip is even if your campaign isn't, you know, queer focused, it's important to get feedback from a diverse group of people to sense check your campaign, um, making sure it isn't intentionally exclusive, tone deaf or harmful. And then again, are we leaning into stereotypes? Is this authentic, relatable? Um, is this a real representative uh, example of the of the LGBTQ community? Or are we just leaning into the, the gay best friend trope, as I said earlier? <laughs> creative. Again, honestly, this whole thing could pretty much be summarized as include queer people (laughs) in every step. Um, But of course, include, you know, queer models, actors and creatives to feature in your campaign. Um, Really important if those characters are LGBTQ plus. Um, 
from a briefing perspective. So uh, making sure it's really thorough and um, you're saying, what do I want by when and why do I want it? But allowing for flexibility and creative on creativity on how they deliver it. So, again, if you have um, opted to, you know, have a queer creator as part of a campaign, um, but you're then trying to police them on their clothing or how they re- how they um, express themselves, then it's probably not doing it for the right reason. So, don't ask them to water down anything. Um, allow them to present as their authentic self. Um, this is also when you can kind of act as an intermediary um, and, again, avoid just slapping a rainbow on something to make it pride-themed. Copy gender-neutral language. Um, kind of mentioned that before. They instead of he slash she. Um, also writing your content in plain, simple language. So um, one thing I haven't ex- explicitly said throughout this, but there is quite a, a, an overlap between the queer and neurodivergent communities. Um, so you might find actually a lot of these these tips are more on the accessible side for neurodivergent folks. Um, but the great thing about creating something with queer or neurodivergent people in mind is it becomes more inclusive for anyone and everyone. So things like formatting into digestible chunks, um, producing content in different formats, having a clear call to action, um, utilizing visual storytelling, all things that are probably going to really resonate with um, communities of, of all kinds. And last point, again, this is more from an accessibility perspective, um, but going through the whole customer journey process, ensuring the website has clear navigation, FAQs are really helpful to um, really walk through the process um, and also having a considered post-purchase email flow, walking everyone through the step of the process. Um, From more of like your website perspective as an organization, so, you know, make sure that you are speaking about the initiatives that you have, um, but avoid that performative nature. Again, if you're just putting a a queer person or a person of color smack bang in the middle of your diversity section, but you haven't actually done the work behind the scenes, um, that may be uh, dipping into performative waters. And again, this this whole piece, uh, a lot of this can be summarized in this quote. This is anonymous, but it was popularized by South African disability advocates, Michael Masutha and William Rowland, nothing about us without us. Okay, I'm going to pop back in um, for the questions, but I just want to say first thank you um, to everyone for listening. If you want to find me on anywhere, I'm Path Avara. I'm like the only Path. Um, so you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or you could learn more about Take Up Space at takeupspace.io. Awesome. And I'm going to come back for the questions. Okay. Okay, cool. So a really good question on building an inclusive team. Um, What advice can you give? We do a lot of work to create safe spaces internally, but don't like to publicly promote it because it has been flagged as virtue signaling. So I personally don't really like the term virtue signaling. Um, because again, I think, I think, you know, we're all, hopefully we're all decent humans on this, on this stream. I feel like, you know, when you're doing something 
to gain something and when you're doing something for the right reasons. Um, and it sounds like your organization is actually doing the work behind the scenes. So I think it is really great to be able to, um, to publicly share that. Um, but, but think about the ways in which you're doing that. So obviously on, on your website, if you have, um, policies or a a diversity inclusion section, I think that is great to be able to show that. Um, yeah, I think, I think you, it sounds like you are doing the work to be able to shout about the things that you're doing. Um, but again, have, have that moment thinking, Ooh, okay. Is this stepping into performative or, um, yeah, I guess, is it, is it virtue, virtue signaling? But again, I think, I think we just need to be honest with ourselves and in terms of what we're doing, um, if it's coming from that right place. Um, how can we measure the impact and effectiveness of our, of our inclusive marketing campaigns within the third sector beyond just metric and analytics? Yeah. So there are some really great agencies. I mentioned Purple Goat, but they specialize in, um, in the disabled community uh, and neurodivergent community. Um, but there's a, a collective called Diversity Standards Collective. And uh, a piece that I really like that they do is they um, – they have people from all different communities come together in a round table. Um, and what they can do is they can kind of sense check a campaign before it goes live, or they can kind of provide some, um, some commentary and feedback on a campaign that's already gone live. So I think that is probably a great way to get, uh, some on the ground, um, feedback for your campaigns, um, to see, um, you know, if it is resonating with those communities, um, again, yeah, just, just having those communities in a room discussing in a safe manner, um, that they feel, um, welcome and allowed to, to express themselves, I think can provide some really great insights. Okay. Are there any specific tactics or channels that have proven particularly effective? Yeah. In reaching the, the queer audience. So I obviously spent about 30 minutes of my presentation talking up TikTok. Um, I think, you know, leaning towards, um, there's a st- stat lately, I think it may be US based, but it basically said that a quarter of Gen Z identify as queer. So that's obviously a huge umbrella. Um, but I think then thinking through that, okay, where are young people hanging out on the internet? It potentially is, is places like, um, like TikTok, um, you know, Instagram is still, is still up there. Uh, I think just thinking through how youth, (laughs) um, are kind of utilizing the internet and you will probably be able to reach, um, the queer community. Um, but again, I think it's, it's more about having campaigns that are, are pulling on an insight or a thread that feels really organic to the queer community. Um, I'll use a personal example. I'm very sad that this campaign never went live because I just think it would have been banging, but uh, I pitched once for an oat milk company and I basically gave them the insight that oat milk is queer coded. What I mean by that is it's like an inside joke in the queer community that, um, all queer people drink oat milk. And I basically pitched, uh, that they would work with all these queer creators, um, becoming like the gay oat milk. (laughs) Um, but they didn't quite go for it. I think they probably thought that maybe it was being performative, but I think that was a good example of a real tangible insight that is very close and authentic to the queer community that would have really resonated with them. So all that to say tactics or channels, you know, find out where, um, your audience is hanging out again. uh, I mean, queer people of all ages. So you've got to kind of use your, um, 
your demographics and, and your information about market research in the normal ways. But I think it's more about the message rather than the tactical channels. Okay, I've pitched to my boss about being more vocally proactive to improve our team's diversity and why it's important, but he doesn't think it's a good idea, thinks it is inviting scrutiny and will highlight the work we need to do. I've already worked on the policies and created the plan. What can I do? Oh, that is a tough one. I really feel for you there. I think this is this is the the tricky thing because we all have these bottlenecks in the form of you know, the manager um, ahead of you um, or the leadership team, if they aren't on the same page as you, it can be really difficult to push this through. Um, and saying that, one of the key things I, I said from here was the only thing worse than not starting and uh, the only thing worse than starting and failing is not starting. It's okay that you feel behind. I'm using quotations. It's okay that you feel behind. Um, everyone is on the journey, but I, I, I honestly think that you can do a lot of this work internally before you even have to speak out about it. Um, if they think that it is encouraging scrutiny within the organization, I think it's all about the framing, right? Like change management. It's all about the framing in which you're putting this forward. Um, but also being honest, like, Hey, we know that, you know, we know we're lacking in this area and this is what we're doing. And we encourage, you know, we're going to have a round table, a discussion an opportunity for you to bring your ideas and bring us on this journey because we're committed to this and we're committed to doing more. Um, so again, it sounds like you are completely on board. Um, but I think just, um, hopefully providing some of that information that, you know, it's okay that we're starting from this, from this, uh, place. We have a lot of work to do, but we're committed to it. And what if we don't do anything now? Where are we going to be in five years or 10 years? You know, it's um, better late than ever. <laughs> I think there might be a chance for one more. So let me have a quick look. How can I support my team to be aware of the impact of language when working with marginalized people? So I think this is a lot of it comes to training. Um, excuse me. So a lot of it, you know, if you don't have any sort of inclusive language training, the first thing you can do is hire a consultant um, to come in and run uh, a session on inclusive language. Um, and ideally, this person is going to be able to provide different different perspectives. So it's quite um, a holistic view. So I think, honestly, you don't have to take that on yourself, um, but have the training, but then make sure that you are, you know, um, pointing things out when things aren't, aren't quite going correctly. Um, if you're from a manager or you're in a leadership position, you know, the, the onus is on you to ensure that, um, your team is, is creating a, a inclusive environment. So, you know, again, that's a, that's a situation where it's step up, um, and call things out or call in. Um, it really depends on what's happening. I think if we all make mistakes again, um, you know, that language evolves, there are things that we, we don't know what we don't know. So, you know, having the wherewithal to be able to be like, Ooh, I, this person said this, not quite, um, you know, hundred percent, I'm going to you know, pull them aside and, and mention it to them. But if, you know, if there's an environment happening that is actively aggressive, or you can see someone's getting upset and it's just not appropriate, um, behavior, then calling them out with everyone in, um, included, I think is really important because that shows that to the queer people, in your organization, again, that you have that zero tolerance stance, um, and that you're going to, um, you know, stand up for your career employees. It's not just something that you slap on the website. 
Oh, thank you so much. Um, awesome. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I really appreciate uh, the time. Hopefully you've learned some things. Um, and again, yeah, feel free to um, follow me on LinkedIn if you haven't already. I'm Path Avara. Um, and yeah, if you are like, oh, really need to do some more work on this, um, I am available for consultancy and speaking. So just slide into my DMs. But yeah, thank you so much for fundraising everywhere for having me on. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not share it with a fundraising friend? And if you would like to give us a little like or subscribe, it really helps more fundraisers like you find us. Thank you so much. See you next time.